if I were to go on to mastermind, my specialist subject in the big black chair would be the RNLI between 1849 and 1897. I'm Dr. Sam Jones. I've been an RNLI volunteer since 2010, so 13 years. I joined the crew in Tobermory and became a navigator on our all-weather lifeboat. I'm now the station's lifeboat operations manager and I'm also a member of the Scottish Council. I became interested in the RNLI's history when I first joined the crew and um, I was really surprised to find that um, by 1849 the RNLI was in, in crisis and that its survival was by far means um, not guaranteed. Sir William Hillary lived on the Isle of Man and he witnessed a number of shipwrecks and um, actually was involved in, in some of the rescues and I think he was very struck by the loss of life but also the fact that uh, local boatmen were going out and risking their own lives. And um, he basically published uh, a pamphlet in February 1823 um, recommending the formation of a shipwreck institution. Now this first version of the pamphlet landed quite badly um, nobody was really interested in it at all and um, so he went back to the drawing board and he, he wrote uh, a second far more emotive version of the pamphlet which grabbed the interest of um, Thomas Wilson who was an MP for the City of London and between them they uh, set up the meeting on the 4th of March um, 1824, which is the anniversary which we're going to be celebrating uh, next year. And it took place in the London Tavern. Um, all the best things happen in pubs, apparently, uh, not least the foundation of the RNLI. The period between 1849 and 89 is such an important period for the RNLI for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was the period in which the RNLI was really turned around by a small group of men who embarked on a reorganisation programme. We always think of the RNLI um, has been a successful organisation right from the very beginning. And it's true that in 1824, it, it had a very auspicious start. It raised £10,000 in its first year and it very quickly got royal patronage. The first 25 years were actually incredibly difficult for the organisation and by 1849 it had an income of about £354 and less than 20 lifeboats, most of which were literally rotting away around the coast. In 1849 there was um, a major tragedy up in South Shields with the loss of a lifeboat which um, led to the loss of 22 of its crew who were Tyne pilots and this seems to have focused um, the public imagination and public mind on um, what sort of state the lifeboat service was in. And in fact, the Shipping and Mercantile Gazette a couple of years ago had actually asked what's happened with the RNLI. We haven't heard anything about it for a few years. So this prompted a small group of individuals to come in and turn the organisation around, including uh, a Welshman uh, called Richard Lewis, who was just 28 years old at the time and he became the RNLI secretary, or what we would now call chief executive, 
uh, for the next 33 years. I think we always think of the RNLI being set up as a charity, but actually William Hillary sought state funding um, very early on. That wasn't very that wasn't forthcoming at the time, um, because you know the, these these were the days when when government really didn't intervene in anything and didn't really fund very much other than the military. But when the the new leadership came in with with Richard Lewis they recognised that um, the charity funding which they had really wasn't sufficient to establish a national lifeboat service because until this point, between 1824 and 1849, it could scarcely be called uh, a national lifeboat service, which was Hillary's intention. So the, the new leadership recognised that they, they needed um, funds, although they they'd set about increasing income from, from voluntary fundraising, they recognised that it just wasn't enough to achieve the ambitious reorganisation programme and expansion programme which they wanted to undertake. So they took a very pragmatic decision and actually took government funding for a period of um, 15 years between 1854 and 1869. It's the only time in the RNLI's history that it's had government funding, except for 2020 with the pandemic when some of the staff were furloughed. If we were to bring Richard Lewis and his colleagues to the RNLI in the 21st century, it would be instantly recognisable to them. Um, they prioritised making sure that the the fleet was not only expanded, but the lifeboats themselves were were safe. They've, they focused quite heavily on self-writing lifeboats, um, but they also recognised the importance of volunteers and having really good training and also maintaining the boats themselves. So there's so much that would be familiar to them. I have an engraving of a self-writing lifeboat trial, which took place in, in Limehouse, which is where the RNLI's uh, boat builders were at the time. And I also have a photograph um, that I took in Poole a few years ago of a Shannon-class lifeboat undergoing the same trials with the same strops. It looks absolutely identical. And I think that they they really would recognise the RNLI. And I think by the same token, they'd recognise the role in which they've had in establishing the organisation that we, we know and, and love today. But they didn't just focus on rescue. Um, we tend to think these days that prevention work is something that we've only been doing really in, in the last few years through campaign, campaigns such as Respect the Water. But it really isn't new. Back in the, the second half of the 19th century, the new leadership um, were promoting a model fishing boat, for example, um, to encourage better boat building around um, the coast. They were placing barometers at lifeboat stations so that local mariners could see if there was a storm on the way. They were even promoting swimming lessons as well. And um, they also pioneered a, a new resuscitation technique. Um, and I love the name of it. It's called the restoration of the apparently drowned. And uh, trust me, the diagrams are, are really not for the squeamish. I don't think it's how we would carry out CPR today, that's for sure. In this period, the RNLI took government funding um, between 1854 and 1869. You would think that government had the upper hand and that they had control of the RNLI. And it's true that they they did try to um, get greater transparency from what the RNLI was doing 
and um, get a measure of control, not not only through the national organisation, but also at a local level. But actually, I've been fortunate enough to find some of the um, contemporary government papers at the time, and um, they really demonstrate that uh, actually Richard Lewis and his colleagues were very, very astute, I think some would say cunning, um, in the way in which they, they were dealing with, with the civil servants. And at one point, government did actually consider nationalising the lifeboat service quite, on, quite early on in the, in the mid-1850s. But I think they quickly realised that actually it was going to be such a huge undertaking that it was actually better for them to support the RNLI to expand their lifeboat provision around the coasts of um, Britain and Ireland. And it's, it's really interesting, you can see in the government papers, that the civil servants were actually questioning in the mid-1850s whether the organisation was actually going to survive. And then by the 1860s, they just had the most utmost respect for, for the way that the organisation was being, was being run. There are other threads as well which link the 1850s and the second half of the 19th century and 2024. Richard Lewis himself had been a parliamentary reporter before he took the role at the RNLI and he was very, very aware of the power of publicity right from the outset. And um, he was involved with his colleagues in setting up the lifeboat magazine, uh, which was one of the first charity periodicals, um, which was not only used to keep uh, volunteers around the RNLI informed, but really how it was very public facing as well and really promoting um, the work of the RNLI, uh, the rescues which the crews were involved in, um, beautiful engravings. Occasionally there were even um, poems and, and songs in it. And it, we are obviously still publishing The Lifeboat today, um, although I haven't seen any songs um, in it recently. Um, so they're very, very astute um, with using publicity to raise awareness of the RNLI's work, because I think Lewis realised that it was important not only to, to raise public awareness of what the RNLI was doing, but also that public awareness generated support for the RNLI and ultimately generated an income as well. I think the historians of um, 22-24 will look back and see some of the themes that I see in my period in the late 19th century in 2024. Um, they'll see a lot of very passionate people keeping the organisation going, um, facing challenges, and we still have similar ch challenges today in terms of fundraising and income and expenditure, which they had back in the 19th century. Um, and we have the same dedicated people, dedicated fundraisers, the dedicated staff, the dedicated shop volunteers, and we still have that volunteer ethos. The technology has changed, and the technology will change between 2024 and 2224. But one thing that I am very certain will not have changed is that volunteer ethos and the commitment that we have from our volunteers, not just those who go out on our lifeboats and are on our beaches as lifeguards, but everybody who's involved in making the RNLI this tremendous institution, which it was back in the 19th century, it was in the 20th century, it is in the 21st century, and it will be in the 22nd century.
Hello, this is Timothy Spall. You've been listening to the RNLI's 200 Voices Collection. To hear more remarkable stories, head to rnli.org slash 200 voices or subscribe to RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Two Hundred Voices is an adventurous audio limited production for the RNLI.